I'm Carrie. And I'm Amy. And you are listening to The Perks of Being a Book Lover. This is a show where two different friends, Amy is like a golden retriever and I'm like a grumpy cat, talk about all the amazing advantages that come from living a bookish life. Each week we do a deep dive Q&A with a book lover, an author, awesome, a bookseller, bingo, a member of a book club, marvelous. We chat with bibliophiles from all over about why stories are integral to who they are. This week, we chat with Brittany Thurman, a native of Kentucky who has recently published her first children's book titled Fly. She worked as a children's specialist at the Carnegie Library of Pittsburgh, which is where the idea to write her own book occurred. And she even took inspiration from one of the children who would come to her story times. Fly is the story of a young girl who wants to enter a double dutch jump rope competition, but doesn't know how. She asks her friends for tips, and they each give her a piece of knowledge that helps her be more confident in her dreams. In this episode, Brittany tells us about the creation of her book, as well as the other books that she has in the pipeline, including one about the first public library built for and staffed by African Americans in the United States, which is the Western branch of the Louisville Free Public Library System. Brittany is a very busy new author. But first, how are you? I haven't talked to you this weekend. I'm good. My arms are finally starting to recover. This Ecuador trip is starting to feel a little bit more like it might actually happen. I had to get three vaccines to prepare for this trip. So So you went to the International Travel Clinic down at University of Louisville? Yep. They set us up. We had a consultation with them in January, but then I got COVID, so we couldn't go for several weeks. And they contacted the health department and got us printouts to show our all of our COVID vaccinations. But then I had to get, oh, geez, I had to get hepatitis vaccine. I had to get a tetanus and I had to get typhoid. When we went to Costa Rica years ago, we also had a malaria, I think. Was it malaria or yellow fever? Are they too high elevation? They Maybe they don't have that yes, issue. Yes. So she okay. showed us on the maps and Ecuador is, it's pretty high up there. So it was interesting to me. I didn't realize this, that when you're over a certain elevation, mosquitoes don't live there. And so that's why you don't have to get that, that you don't have to worry about that so much. Well, here's my most important question for you. Yeah. Are you going to read a book that's based in Ecuador? Are you going to get that strong sense of place? Uh, No. (laughs) (laughs) And the reason is because I just don't have time. I can't add another book into my life. And that's kind of your thing. Like, I I don't really do that. That Uh, is, that's a lot of planning. I won't even, the the teacher who's leading this Ecuador trip recommended that we get, they're called uh, packing squares or packing cubes to keep all of our clothes organized. And I was like, that's too much planning for me because (laughs) you're pretty organized though. I'm surprised you don't like that idea. I will tell you why I don't like that idea because I rewear the same stuff on vacations. I determine how dirty stuff is at the end of the day. And my philosophy is also that I'm never going to see these people again. You know, as long as it doesn't stink, if I wear the same shirt four days in a row, I don't care. To me, it's extra money to spend on these packing cubes that it's just, it's far (laughs) too restrictive. Now for my daughter, Nora overpacks Mm -hmm. and see, I do not overpack. I am very minimalist. We could go away for a long weekend and she packs like she's going to be there for six weeks. So to her, you know, she can benefit from packing cubes, but to me, they just feel like they're going to cramp my dial. So I'm more in the Nora camp, although I'm much better as I've gotten older. But yeah, I tend to overpack and I'm not a good organized packer. So Carrie, you introduced me to Wordle and I like it very much. I play it every day. My husband and I, if that's the first thing we do in the morning and then we sort of compare, you know, our Wordle journey for the day. But I found something new called Quirtle. Now, what is that? I've seen that, but I I haven't investigated. (laughs) So it is Wordle, but quadrupled. It's the Wordle board, but times four all on one board. And instead of six tries, you get nine tries. So basically, okay, you play your five letter word. Say it's stale, right? Uh It's stale on each one of the four boards. But... Each board 
might have different letters that are in that word. So there's actually four different words. I'm not sure if I'm making any sense. It took me a little while to understand it. I saw it on... Completely confused. Okay. Uh, I'll have to post a picture of it on our on our social media. I'll have to okay. send it to you after. But like, you, if you go to Quirtle.com, uh-huh. you will see it. But it's the same thing. It's a daily puzzle. I know. It took me a little while to get it at first, too. But basically, you're playing a Wordle, but like on four different boards simultaneously. Oh, my God. You're using the same word on each four boards. But as soon as you get one word from one Wordle board, uh-huh. then you can start working on the next Wordle board. So I saw this actually on the Facebook page of one of our former guests, Ellen Burkett Morris. Uh-huh. And I looked it up. I'm like, oh my God, that's too much. That gives me a headache. Well, I showed it to my husband. He actually liked the idea and he shared it with his work Slack group. Uh-huh. And now they're all doing it and then sharing their scores <laughs> at the end of the day because, you know, so like on regular Wordle, maybe you say, okay, I got it in five. Well, on a Quirtle game, you would say, well, I got it in three, five, seven, and nine, you know, like how many tries it took. So then once they were all doing it, I'm like, damn it, I can't let all these doctors get the best of me. I am going to get one of these Quirtles. And so now I've been playing it. I'm actually enjoying Quirtle quite a bit. That's like packing cubes. That's way more complicated than things need to be. For all those Wordle people out there who like Wordle, but one puzzle's not enough and you want to try something that's like a little bit more challenging. It's not a, I mean, it's not a lot more challenging, just a little bit more challenging. Give Quirtle a try. There's a couple other uh, word games. I haven't tried these, but I, I think I would like them. One is called Swerdle and it's cuss words. Oh, oh yeah, you would like that. That would be good. And then there's also Loodle. L-E-W-D. Oh, no. So lewd words. I've also heard about one called absurdal. <laughs> so I don't know. <laughs> like, is that a Sam, Sam Beckett play? What's that about? I don't know. So um, I would do one of those before I do Quirtle. Yeah. Except for, I mean, there's a lot of swear words, but not oh, one yeah. every day indefinitely. Unless you start doing other languages and and things like that. I don't know. Well, and maybe, I mean, there are some people who, (laughs) you know, this is not the rule in our house. But I mean, I know some people, they won't let their kids say but when their kids are little because that's a a bad word. I don't know what the parameters are on swear words. But But that's not a five-letter word. If you think about it, most... well, I guess, but most bad words are four-letter words. Well, but well, they are, but that—that's the difference. It's a four-letter word game. It's not a five-letter word game. Ah, okay. Yeah. So anyway, I haven't tried those, but you know, like I said, those seem like much more my speed than four different boards with five-letter words and lots of complicated rules. And whew. well, fortunately, Brittany did not include any lewd or cuss words. You know. <laughs> No, they're innocent and nice. That's right. Besides it being a beautiful book, it is one that I think kids and adults can both take something from, which is always a plus. So let's talk to Brittany. Brittany, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. I'm always thrilled to talk to new authors because they're so excited to be on this writing journey and seeing their work out in the world. And your new picture book, Fly, is really beautiful, I must say. Uh, Before we talk about your book, we always like to ask our guests about their reading when they were a kid and when they were a teenager. So were you a big reader during that time of your life? I was. I think I was a big reader because my grandmother was a big reader. She would go to the library. She would pick out her little romance novels and I would pick out the books that I wanted to read. And so we would like read together. And so that really just started me reading books, seeing her enjoy reading a good novel. I remember reading Addie Walker, having my Addie Walker doll. Um, <laughs> I love that series. I love the uh, the other books in that series, but Addie Walker really jumped out to me. And then I also was a huge fan of Goosebumps. And mm-hmm. so every day on my way home from school, I would ride the bus and I would read a Goosebumps book on my way home. And I remember this kid I used to sit next to, we would exchange Goosebumps books 
every evening um, on this bus ride. And then also I used to love a series. I don't know if it was really well known, but it's a series called Replica. I just saw about this last night, but I've read probably the entire series. It was um, similar to the TV show Dark Angel that used to come on, but it was okay. about a girl who was a clone and there were, I guess, hundreds of her running around. Um, but those were the types of books that I loved. I loved series. I loved books um, that were kind of scary. I loved a good adventure book too. The Eddie Walker books, were those in the American Girl series? Yeah, they, they were. Very good. Well, it sounds like your interest, because that's his, more like historical fiction, but then it sounds like you had some interest in sci-fi and horror. Mm -hmm. You branched out quite a bit when you were a kid, which is awesome. Yeah, I liked a little bit of everything, I think. I, so my favorite show as a kid was Full House. So when the little Mary-Kate and Ashley books came out, the chapter books, those were also books that I read all the time. I had a range of taste in books. So your background is as a children's specialist at the Carnegie Library of Pittsburgh, and you've had some other positions with reading as the focus. So what did that job entail, and how did you segue into writing for your first picture book, Fly, which was just published? Yeah, so I was a children's specialist in a children's department of this library in Pittsburgh, and of all the jobs I've had, that was probably my favorite. I would lead story times. Um, in the evenings, I would lead uh, baby and toddler story times. So with the really young ones, I would also go to different schools across Pittsburgh and do outreach visits uh, by reading stories and doing like literacy related programs with the kids there. And so I always say that I've read like hundreds of books to thousands of kids because I feel like over the years, that's really how many it was, even though I didn't keep a total. As I was reading these picture books, I feel like I picked up on the structure and the cadence and how lyrical picture books can be. I also picked up on how a kid interacts with the picture book, how it captivates their attention and really opens their world. And so I wanted to take my stories, um, which always start out as poetry, but really just take my stories and see can I make a picture book too? And what's lacking on the shelf? How can I really expand this for kids and also for an avenue for me to go down myself? So that was really how it started by reading to kids at the library. I had 630 story times and my regulars would come running into story time and we would read their favorite books or we would read new books. But the more I read, the more I really wanted to write my own picture books. Where did the idea for Fly come from? A lot of my books start out as poetry and it's, they start really from an emotion. So I was on my lunch break at the library one day and I was having just a, a I don't want to say a difficult time, but just an interesting time in my life where I knew that I was capable of like going for my dreams and doing the things I wanted to do. But I didn't know how to take that next step. I was also thinking about how in the past um, I had a lot of insecurities, like insecurities from not seeing myself represented in books or in media. And I wanted to instill within this poem that I wrote the things that I was capable of doing, the things that the kids around me were capable of doing, and what would happen if we went for those things that we want out of life without having this fear are these doubts and worries hold us back? And so that's how Fly started. It started off as a poem with no narrative, just about a Black girl who recognizes the things she's capable of, but also highlights these insecurities that have filled my life. And from there, I shopped the poem around. I took it to different editors, agents, critique partners. And I heard pretty much the same thing over and over again, that this isn't a picture book yet. It had some good qualities, but how can you turn this poem into a narrative that kids will latch onto, that they can see themselves, that follows a protagonist with a goal? So it was a lot of back and forth about, in total, six years of oh, wow. editing this manuscript, finding the right agent for me, which is another story and finding the right editor 
So we sent it off to about 12 different editors. We got 11 rejections. And the last uh, editor we had it out to, my current ed editor, Caitlin Dooley, who also is the editor for Jason Reynolds. So she emailed that I thought that it was just going to be a no because I had heard all these no's before, but my agent let me know that you know she wanted to acquire the book. So it's, it's been a long road from this poem to this narrative uh, story. In the book, it's uh, it's about a little girl who wants to do a double Dutch competition. So was the book from the beginning, did it always feature double Dutch or was mm -hmm. that something that evolved? No, so that's something that evolved. In my first draft, I didn't mention double Dutch at all. I did mention Africa as in like the continent Africa, but there was no mention of double Dutch. There was no mention of family. There was no mention of like her community of friends that help her. It was really just about her insecurities and like her goal to be better. So the first draft didn't mention double Dutch. But then as I was revising, I thought about the things that I had insecurities about as a kid, the things I wanted to do but was too afraid to do. And double dutch was one of those things that I love seeing people double dutch and I always wanted to jump to the ropes, but as a kid, I was too scared. And so I really played on that. Like what would happen if I wasn't afraid to double dutch when I was younger? So I have a question about the whole process when you're when you're submitting these to editors because so much of a picture book is about the pictures, but it sounds like you were just submitting the story. Mm -hmm. I mean, did you have someone in mind who was doing the illustrations? Mm -hmm. How did that work? Yeah, so for me, going through my agent and then Simon & Schuster, when I first wrote this story, I had an idea of how the picture should look. And I did have illustrators in mind. Um, Vashti Harrison was an, an illustrator that I love. I love her little leaders book. I love Hair Love that she illustrated. Um, so she was one of my top picks. Also Frank Morrison, who is this brilliant illustrator, but also I just want to put all his art on my wall. <laughs> he was another one. And how it works is that with me going through a major publisher, they have the final say. Um, so they were really nice in taking in my suggestions. But unfortunately, um, the two people I had in mind weren't available. And so we had to go back to the drawing board. I had not heard of Anna Kunha prior to my editor suggesting her. And she sent samples of Anna's books that Anna has already illustrated. And when I saw those, it was an automatic yes. It was like this breath of fresh air that, you know, I didn't know this person before. I know of her now and her illustrations, even the samples seem to just match my words, but on a completely different level. So for a lot of people going through like a major publisher, it's really like the publisher who kind of makes that decision. And then also me and my illustrator, you know, I wasn't telling her what I wanted mm. or, or, you know, asking her to do certain things It because this is really her book too. And I really wanted to respect that. I really love the illustrations. They're very soft and flowing and they reminded me a little bit like they were done in chalk almost, which makes you think of playground and double Dutch and, and things like that. So uh, it really is a, a lovely. So there's a phrase that repeats in the book several times that I was struck by. And of course, kids, you know, they love repetition, but it was this line and I'm going to read it. But Africa is the name of the little girl, the main character. Africa has a birthmark and the shape of her name that's always shown her what she's made of. So talk about this phrase a little bit. So the phrase came from two different places. It came from me working at the library. There was a little girl who came in. Her name was Africa, but it was spelled a different way. She was very confident and self-aware, self-assured. She bossed me around a little bit. Um, <laughs> and I always like wondered, what does it mean to carry a name that holds so much weight? And does she understand like what her name means and how it's connected to her ancestry? So I thought about that a lot in figuring out what to name this character in my story. And then also um, I thought a lot about how me being Black in America, I often as a kid 
insecurity has gotten in the way because it matters when you see yourself represented in books and TV and magazines. The microaggressions I experienced when I was younger got in my way. The discrimination I experienced when I was younger and, and older as well. And I really started to latch on to, I have always been capable of achieving the things I wanted to achieve. I've always been capable of taking the next step regardless of these things that have happened in my life. And I think it is due to my ancestry, it's due to my elders who were able to push past the things that they went through. It's due to my ancestors who were able to push past the things they went to. And sometimes I just want to be able to embody that in all that I do. I think that naming her Africa was a way for me to say, this is who you are. This is where you came from. These are the people you came from. And no matter what obstacles you may have in your way, always know that you are capable of taking the next step in succeeding. I wanted her name to embody everything. And so that's where that that name came from. And that's where the line came from. Africa has a birthmark in the shape of her name that has always shown her what she's made of. She wears her name literally everywhere she goes. I love that. Does the little girl who you knew at the library, does she know that her name is in a book and that you inspired her? No, she she (laughs) does not. She doesn't. When the book was officially acquired and when these things started rolling in, illustration and all of this stuff, I mean, it was when the world was at this state of Mm. flux. And so like I left the library at the end of 2019. I didn't have any way to connect with this child. Uh, some of my other library patrons, I'm still in contact with, but unfortunately she's not one of them. I have three children and read them, you know, picture books from the time they they came out of me. And, you know, I love it when picture books have something that's that's for the kids, but it's also something that the adults can really grab meaning from. I, I really appreciate that. And it sounds mm-hmm. like the symbolism there of her name and, and that birthmark is is huge. So the idea of community in your mm-hmm. book and skills that children have or skills that adults have and, and sharing those and fostering yeah. those skills. So, so talk to us a little bit about the idea of community in the book. So I think it's important for children to recognize that we have a vast variety of communities around us. You know, there's your school community, your uh, friend community, you have your family, that's a community. You might have your church, that's a community or your after school group. And I also wanted to really instill that, that it's okay to ask your community for help, whether that's like in some big major way, you know, um, or in a small way. And growing up, I relied on my community a lot. Like when my family was down on our luck, I relied on my community, my neighbors who, who still are a community to me, who would help, but sometimes they wouldn't always have the resources to give everything that we needed, but they were always giving of themselves in some way. And I thought about that as I was revising how we don't always have to have the answer to a question or a problem, but how important it is for us to be able to give something to someone who needs it. And within Fly, you know, she goes around to her different friends. She asks them, how do you double dutch? They don't know either. They've never double dutched before, but they're willing to give something of themselves. And I wanted to to show that within the book, that it's okay to ask. No, you're, the person you're asking might not have the solution or all the answers, but hopefully they will be willing to give something, even if it's just a little bitty piece to the puzzle that will help you get where you need to be. I loved it that you, I mean, you sort of lived this as well, because on your Instagram account, when your book came out, you spent several days celebrating friends of yours who inspired you for different reasons. You know, you were living the thing that you were talking about. I love that. 
Thank you. Yeah. It's sometimes it's scary to reach out because you never know what someone's response might be. But everyone I asked was eager to help and to get their kids involved in showing like what makes them fly. My friend Mandy was eager to sing for us to show what makes her fly. And that's what it's all about. Just asking and the right friends are there to help you along the, the way. So when you were talking earlier about, you know, how you started with the poem and then you talked to different editors who were helping you craft it into this picture book, you know, we've talked to to different writers who have written picture books. And, and I know for myself, you know, sometimes when you are writing for a different audience, you know, and especially with younger kids, sometimes that's hard to sort of parse down a story into what's sort of most critical for, for younger readers. So, well, first of all, let me ask you this. So did elements of the poem make it into the book? And then also, was it difficult trying to write it in a way that you felt kids would appreciate? So I think the only part of the poem that made it into the story was like the first line. Um, Africa has a a birthmark, which actually started off as something completely different that made no sense. Um, So it wasn't exactly the same, but it was similar. But I think that's really the the only solid thing that made it from the poem to the story. It was a lot of like editing my words, editing my concept and the plot to get it to where it needed to be. And I think that was like, probably throughout this whole process, besides waiting, I'm really great at revision. But within comes to a picture book, you know, you're putting in all the elements of a story within 32 very short pages, Mm -hmm. and often less than a 1000 words, less than 600 words sometimes. So I I freelance, right? I, I was recently assigned something and I had to get it in 200 words or less. Mm -hmm. And I was interviewing people. I mean, it was for domestic violence. How do you put that into 200 words? So I don't think most people, unless they're writing for the public, they may not really fully understand just how difficult it is Mm -hmm. when you are given a constraint like that. And so that's part of, you know, thinking about my own experience made me think about the challenge for you as a writer and, and what you said, you only have a, you know, a certain amount of words, you only have 32 pages and it can't be 32 pages that are top to bottom, side to side words, you know, yeah. you have the illustrations. And, and so I, I'm not sure that everybody appreciates mm-hmm. that struggle. Yeah. And I think that with writing picture books, another thing to think about is that like as a picture book writer, I'm thinking kind of with the mind of an illustrator. So my words have to be lyrical and poetic to paint that picture um, so that I'm not taking up space with text. That's one thing that helps me to write picture books, but it's also not the easiest thing to do, you know, because you're still trying to get that three-act structure, but within a short amount of space. I've read somewhere that you said that your time in college at Carnegie Mellon University Drama Department in Pittsburgh gave you your first spark to write for kids. So tell us a little bit about that experience and that inspiration. I was at Carnegie Mellon for grad school. I was there for dramatic writing. So I was in the School of Drama and I was writing plays that were performed at Carnegie Mellon. I also had my plays performed in Aspen, Colorado and in New York on Theater Row. But As I was leaving Carnegie Mellon, I realized that I really didn't necessarily want to write for the stage for the rest of my life. Just as writing books, it's difficult to get published. I feel like it was even harder to be a playwright. And a lot of the the theaters I was sending my plays to weren't really seeing my work in the way that I wanted them to. So I was lucky because at the end of my time in grad school, Instead of teaching grad students, I was teaching third and fourth graders, and I was able to teach them aspects of theater. I also have a background in theater. I went to undergrad for theater. So I was able to teach them as aspects of drama, of theater, and I recognized that I love to work with kids. This was before my time at the library, 
And I wanted to kind of figure out how to merge writing plays at the time with working with the kids I was working with. And so I started off writing a children's play that was partially set in outer space, partially set in some country town. And I still recognized, like, I didn't want to write plays the rest of my life. And so I started to adapt that play into a novel, which did not see the light of day. But (laughs) that was kind of how it started. As a writer of color, have you found that there are, and and I'm, of course, there are different things that you have to consider that maybe a white writer wouldn't have to think about? And are there different pressures or expectations that that a writer of color might have, you know, from agents or editors or readers? Have you experienced any of that or mm-hmm. felt any weight of that as you've gone through your journey? Yeah. I mean, I feel it now and at times, unfortunately. I definitely felt it in the beginning. I think that as a Black writer, I want my book and my books to be read all throughout the year, you know, not just Black History Month. And that's another thing that I'm constantly navigating is wanting publishers to recognize that this book can and should exist outside of certain holidays. I think that there is a lot of pressure on me for my work to be perfect. Of course, it should be great. Of course, it should be quality work. But sometimes a writer who is not Black or a person of color can can get away with writing something that has issues, but their work is accepted. Whereas if my work has issues, it's an automatic no or revise. I think that that's a barrier that shouldn't be, shouldn't be there. Of course, I, I want my work to be great when I send it to anybody. But if, if someone's going to work with another writer whose work might be lacking in an avenue, then if my work is lacking someplace too, I would hope that that person would want to work with me as well. I think that that's an issue that a lot of Black writers, POC writers deal with because there's a balance that is not fair. So that's part of where the pressure comes from, trying to, to find something that has to be perfect and nothing is going to ever be perfect. And wanting my books to be out all throughout the year, to be highlighted all throughout the year, to be uplifted all throughout the year. It scares me that, okay, what's going to happen after February? (laughs) Um, (laughs) You know, hopefully, you know, I feel good about it. So, you know, there's a double Dutch, a jumper roping day coming up, but also my book should exist outside of this jump roping day. It should exist and be highlighted just because it's here not because there's a holiday going on. You've got several other books coming out. Um, The first one coming out in April that you co-wrote with another author titled Mm -hmm. Fearless Boulevard of Dreams. What is this story about and how is it different than your writing experience from Fly? Yeah, so Fearless is the second book in a series. The Fearless series is written by Mandy Gonzalez. Mandy is an incredible person incredible actress singer she was in in the heights on broadway when in In the heights first was put on stage and she is currently angelica and hamilton on broadway and so she has a series called fearless which is about a group of kids who are broadway stars who are kind of navigating their acting and broadway life but then also navigating these fun, somewhat scary adventures that they get in. And so I was lucky enough to be able to write the second book with Mandy. And the second book follows a kid named Relly, who is in this Broadway show, but also having issues with his home life, with his grandfather who's come to visit. And so Relly and his friends are pushed back in time for Relly to figure out what makes his grandfather the way he is in present day. It's really cool because I was able to research some tap dance figures who were big back in the day who I I never was even aware of. And so it opened up this new world for me in terms of performance and just the incredible talents that people had back in the day, but of course now too. 
but so it has some historical aspects to it and then but it's a fictional middle grade book so that's another reason why it varies from my picture book because it's middle grade novel so a lot more than just 32 words yeah. or, yeah. or pages so you've also you're a busy lady because you also have some other books that you're working on you've got another picture book that's coming out in 2024 titled forever and always and then I've heard that you also have a nonfiction picture book that you're working on as well yeah, so forever and always. So yeah, it comes out, I think, winter of 2024. It's um, going to be illustrated by Shamar Knight Justice. And it's about a little girl named Olivia who worries about her father who goes off to work each day. She's worried that her father might not come back home. Something might happen because in our news, this is what happens. Sometimes the people we love don't come back home. It's a book about anxieties and fears, um, but also about not giving into those anxieties. And Olivia creates something special for her father to keep him safe, protected with her love. So I'm really excited about Forever and Always. And then also in 2024, this hasn't really been announced yet, but I have a, a nonfiction picture book coming out. It is The First Library, the story of the first library for Black America by Black America. It is a story about the Western Branch Library here in Louisville, Kentucky, that was established in 1905. It was established by Albert Mazik originally, but then also other key players from Black history. And it was established because the Kids at the first Central High School, these kids in the early 1900s were trying to go to the main library, which was downtown Louisville, but not where the main library is today. It was actually where the old Galleria was. They were trying to go to the library. They were turned away. Albert Mazik was not having it. And so he went to the, school, the library board, who then went to Andrew Carnegie to establish this Western Branch Library. And the librarians there were untrained librarians, but they actually ended up training other Black librarians across the country to create their own libraries. That's cool. That's I've, an amazing story. Yeah. I had no idea that that was the first one in the country. Yeah. So one day, like years ago, I was walking down the street. I was actually going to go meet my grandmother and I saw the sign outside the library because I love reading those old history signs around town. And I read it and it's always just been in the back of my mind. So around 2020, I wrote the story and it was acquired. Well, you are very busy writing your books, but I think you've also been able to do some in-person events since your <laughs> book launch. So what's it like to meet your readers, kids? Sometimes they can be a tough crowd. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's been really, it's been incredible meeting kids and seeing them eager about flies you know sometimes they've already read the book and kids they are a tough crowd because a few days ago I did a virtual visit and I read the story to a preschooler and at the end she was like okay what's next so they, <laughs> they they're honest but you know they've also been incredibly like excited you know they clap and cheer at the end they tell me about the things they want to do. They tell me about the times they've tried double dutch or that they're afraid to double dutch or that they want to learn how to jump rope. And so we have a conversation about going for the things that you're afraid to do. You know, we talk about writing and what it's like to be a writer and that if they write at this moment, that makes them an author. You know, they don't have to wait to grow up to be an author. They are authors today. Um, so it's really been this like eye-opening and kind of surreal experience because this is what I've been waiting for, but it's been incredible already. And the book has been out for like a month and three days. And it sounds like you're going to be doing a lot more of these with all of these mm -hmm. other titles that you have coming out in the next couple of years. So that's mm -hmm. awesome. I'm so excited for you. It sounds like things are taking off for you like gangbusters. And that's just really, that's just really exciting. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. Well, this has been so fun chatting with you and hearing all about the projects you have working on. We are going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're all going to talk about what we're reading.
We are back with Brittany Thurman and with Carrie. Carrie, it's the moment of truth. You have to tell me what you were reading this week. So this is a book I finished not too long ago. I heard about it from a woman at church. She posted it on Facebook and it sounded intriguing. It's called A Surgeon in the Village, An American Doctor Teaches Brain Surgery in Africa. And it's by Tony Bartlemy. This was a fascinating book. So it is a story of Delon Elagala. He was born in Sri Lanka and then he immigrated to the United States as a child. And from the time he was little, he knew he wanted to be a doctor. So he became a neurosurgeon and before beginning his his residency, he traveled to Tanzania. And this was mostly because the girlfriend that he had at the time was going there. I think she was uh, getting ready to start medical school. So while he was there, you know, at first he kind of just wanted to hang out and just relax before he had to go back to the U.S. and start his residency. But he realized that there was a, a problem. He observed, he began training a medical officer to perform brain surgeries for things like aneurysms and hydrocephalus. So medical officers in Africa are not doctors, and they really aren't nurses either. They have about three years of training. But Delon realized that he could train these medical officers so that people in the community could be helped even when a doctor from another country wasn't there. So this was a fascinating story about Delon and his work and how he created an organization and worked with other organizations to start training medical officers in Tanzania. But this book had another layer or level to it. So it was about this particular hospital in Tanzania, but it was also about some of the issues, some of the the challenges of medical mission trips, but also mission trips in general. So, you know, when we think about people who go to other countries, whether it's Africa or places in South America or places in Asia, you know, doctors who visit do a lot of good. The problem is that they have to leave. Eventually they go back home. And so what that means for the people of whatever place they're visiting is that while they're there, they can get treatment. But once those doctors leave, then they're kind of stuck. And the other thing it talked about in this nonfiction book was about how sometimes resources are wasted when people go on mission trips. For example, one of the things that stuck out to me about this book was about how sometimes when, you know, you see like high schoolers go on mission trips and they go to a country and they'll say they paint a building. Well, sometimes that same building will get painted six times in one summer. Because that's all the, that's all that they could, I mean, what's a teenager going to do? You know what I mean? I mean, like, I, I wouldn't trust a teenager to do much more than just paint a building. That's a problem because are the people in the community really being helped when their building is painted six times in one summer? Not really. And so the other important thing about this book is that it talked about how important surgeries are for people in underdeveloped countries. And I I don't even know, that's probably not the right word. And it's not a word I even like to use. But when we think about people in other countries and public health issues, we think of malaria and we think of tuberculosis and we think of AIDS, but surgeries, more people suffer because they need surgery that they can't acquire than they do from malaria, TB and AIDS put together. And so that's really part of public health that's underappreciated and underfunded, and there's not really a good solution for how to deal with it. So it was, like I said, super fascinating story, not just about this particular doctor, but about public health in other countries and how this is my opinion here, but sometimes I think wealthier countries are just like throw money at it, <laughs> but they do, but that doesn't solve the problem. There's problems that don't get resolved just by throwing money at a situation. And, and that's kind of to assuage people's guilt, I think. My opinion. So that reminds me a little bit of a novel called Cutting for Stone by Abraham Verghese. Have you ever read that? No, book? I haven't. That one is set in Ethiopia and it's it's fictional, but it is about a a hospital and a surgeon. It's actually an OBGYN in a, in a country that has more limited health services. Mm-hmm. It's a well-known novel, but it was very good. But it's heavy on the medical because the author is a is a physician. Mm. 
So well, I'll have to add that to, to my list. Of course you do. I know. <laughs> I know I'm always adding to my list. Uh, Brittany, what have you been reading? So I'm trying to get back to reading more. So right now I'm I'm in the middle of Transcendent Kingdom by Yaa Chiasi. Uh, she also wrote Homegoing and I'm loving it so far, but the books that I finished are actually middle grade novels. Those are the ones I've really read most recently. So Stunt Boy in the Meantime by Jason Reynolds. It's like a graphic novel merged with a regular novel. So it has prose, but then also it has, you know, your graphic novel elements. It's about this little boy who lives in this high rise apartment building and he becomes his own superhero um, to really battle his anxiety that comes from his parents who are in the middle of kind of separating. And then also I just finished another middle grade that came out uh, by Lisa Strangfellow. It is called A Comb of Wishes. It's about a little girl who is dealing with the loss of her mother, but then also the tales of mermaids that exist where she's from. And she ends up kind of coming face to face and battling this mermaid that wants to take something from her. Uh, So it's a really cool kind of mystery, wondrous middle grade novel. Those sound great. That's one of the Jason Reynolds books I haven't read. I have two middle schoolers, so I'm always interested in in middle school books. And don't get Amy started on Homegoing. Oh, I know. It's one of of my favorite (laughs) books of all time. Although I have not read Transcendent Kingdom yet. Is the Jason Reynolds book like a newer release? I've not heard Mm -hmm. of that one. Yeah, it came out at the end of last year. So yeah, it's one of his newest. Well, Amy, what have you had going on over there? I feel like the book that I'm going to talk about kind of weaves together a little bit of both of the books that you talked about. I'm going to talk about a book called Red, White, and Whole by Rajani LaRocca. And this is a middle grade book. And it recently appeared on my radar because our local independent bookstore here, Carmichael's Books, did a shout out about it uh, because the author grew up in Louisville. And and this book was also recently named a Newbery Honor Book. So it's an own voices novel written in verse about an Indian American girl named Reha growing up in a Midwestern city in the 1980s and feeling like she doesn't quite fit in. She has all the first generation immigrant angst read a lot about in other immigrant stories. She doesn't seem to quite feel completely Indian like her parents, but she also feels different from many of her American friends, especially as her parents want her to conform more closely to Indian cultural ideals. And she's a little resentful of her parents because of it. And here's a quote from the book about how her mother's expectations and the American culture all around her differ. She writes, I am not expected to like boys. I'm not expected to date. But all day long on the radio, people sing about falling in love, about hearts breaking and mending and breaking again. And I wonder what it would be like to follow mine. So she soon learns that her mother is very ill and, and she's diagnosed with leukemia and her mother's in the hospital being treated for months. And Reha worries that if she were only a little more compliant to her mother's wishes, her mother wouldn't be sick. And so she promises that she will be exactly the girl her mother wants her to be so that her mother will get well. This book is an interesting look at the immigrant experience, but it also addresses all the stages of grief and what it's like experiencing the the potential death of someone close to you. There's several medical scenes, uh, especially about cancer in this book, as Reha decides that she herself wants to become a doctor one day, even though the sight of blood makes her sick. So that's an an interesting problem that she's going to have to overcome. The author is actually a physician herself. And there are many things in this book that seem like we're inspired from personal experience. And if you know Louisville, you will recognize some of the places she mentions, even if she never mentions Louisville by name. And I wanted to ask the both of you about the trend for middle grade books to be written in verse. I know, Carrie, that you taught a unit to your students where they had to choose a book in verse to read. And I know that, Brittany, your book, Fly, started out as a poem uh, and is Mm -hmm. written in verse. So I'm wondering why you think this is such a popular form for this age group right now. I think 
well, a couple reasons. One, verse can be easier for kids who are reluctant readers because it doesn't feel quite as overwhelming as long chapters. If you show a kid a big, a big thing to read, they're like, oh my gosh, it's so long, you know? So I think in a lot of ways, it's just more approachable. You know, it's easy for kids to approach it. I have taught many, many books in verse and I love it. Part of it is that one of the the great things about it is that you can, you know, we've talked about this. You kind of have to put the most important stuff because you don't have a lot of room to put extra. And so I think that writers are able to get to sort of the, the most important nuggets and they put that in the story. So some of my absolute most favorite books are, are stories written in verse. Brittany, what do you think? Yeah, I agree. I think that it helps. It helps the reader, especially the kid who is reluctant. And like you said, doesn't want to pick up a thick book. And graphic novels do the same thing. You know, readers feel that they can, it's more manageable. And also, I think novels in verse are great because they allow for the writer to write about a difficult subject for a younger age range. And that age range can take in the information without it being overwhelming. Uh, novels and verse are great to get those tough situations, the tough subjects, the things that we don't want to talk about. Because you're able to tell it in a poetic form. You're able to talk about it in a way that's lyrical and that can paint a picture for someone as like all books should do. I think if like a kid loves poetry, it's another way for them to get into poetry as well by reading a novel in verse. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think about um, some of the, you know, or the more popular middle grade authors like Jason Reynolds and Kwame Alexander, and they write them in verse. And I've, you know, I've read, I've read some stuff by Jason Reynolds. I've not read a lot of middle grade books in verse, but I really enjoyed it. You're right. It goes really fast. So I enjoyed it a lot and I would recommend this one. Cool. Well, we are going to take another quick break. And when we come back, Brittany's going to answer her three in the third degree. We are back with Brittany. Are you ready for your questions, Yes, I am. All right. Number one, (laughs) you studied theater in London and have your bachelor's degree from a university there. What's the biggest thing you took away from your experience and what do you miss most about London? Yeah, I think about London a lot. And every time I try to think of like one experience, one specific experience doesn't come to me, but the overall experience does. I remember when I first left being on the plane to London, I had been out of the country before, but never by myself. And when I landed, I realized that I was in this country where I knew no one. I was like, what have I done? (laughs) Uh, What's going to happen next? But I think if anything, that's my takeaway to take that leap. Like when you have the inkling to do something like go to another country um just do it you know you might not get the chance in the future when you have opportunity it's important to take the opportunity and um, that's my takeaway i'm glad that i took that chance when i did because now i don't know would i be able to live in a different country for four years at this moment in my life i don't i don't think so at this moment but i'm glad that i did it when i was younger to have that experience. What was the what was the name of the university that you went to? A Kingston University. It was about 25 minutes outside of London. I lived close to the school I went to, but then I would go into London all the time. I used to work at Topshop, which is in Oxford Circus. I used to work there. And yeah, so I used to go into to the city, but then I had this experience of living about 30 minutes away so that I was kind of out uh, in the country a little bit. That's very that, cool. That took a lot of guts to go mm-hmm. not knowing anybody and going to another country to go to school for four years. That's impressive. Yeah, I'm shocked. To this day. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm seeing a real connection here. You know, you talked about your book Fly and you literally like you flew into <laughs> and, and you know, dealt with those anxieties. And, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, I, I love it. You, you really lived the experience and wrote about so many ways in which people can and should mm-hmm. fly. So that's fantastic. So question number two, you lived several years in Pittsburgh. Where is a place that you'd recommend for people who are visiting to see? Maybe something that, you know, locals know about that, you know, tourists don't? 
Yeah, so Pittsburgh is a great city to visit during the summer. I wouldn't suggest going during the winter because <laughs> it's only ice and snow and it's full of hills. But uh, so I loved to ride my bike when I was in Pittsburgh. I still do when I can. But Pittsburgh has some really great bike trails. So I would say to go off the beaten path, take a random bike trail, you will enjoy the scenery. But then also there is something called the point, which a lot of people know about. It is the point where the three rivers that run through Pittsburgh meet. Um, And this is downtown. But if you go to what is called the south side, there is an incline. You can take this... um, I forgot what it's called. I want to say a lift, but it's not called a lift. But basically, you can take this like little bitty train that will take you up the side of what looks like a mountain. And then from there, when you get to the top, you can look down on all of Pittsburgh. You can also just drive up this mountain and do the same thing. But that's like a really great way to see the entire city all in like one snapshot. And then also to get a really great picture. All right. Question number three, you love old photos. What do you like about them? And do you have a favorite or something special that you like to do with them? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, I love to find old photos. Um, I love to collect them, especially old photos of my family. I love to look at like their stance and their posture and think about what they were thinking during that time, look at what they were wearing, um, look at the style. I like to think about what the picture would look like if it was in color. But then also when I see old photos, there's something that that feels like this could have just happened yesterday. I think that even though I might have a photo from like the 40s, in the grand scheme of things, I realized that wasn't that long ago. So I like to think about how time has shifted and how these moments that we have snapshots of weren't really that far that long ago. But what I would love to do is just frame all of the old photos that I have of my family and get different types of frames, like different intricate frames with different designs and kind of just have them as like a collage on my wall, just like a wall of black and white photos. That's my plan eventually to do that because I think it's important to to not keep them just in a binder or you know your photo album and you're only pulling them out once a year but to show them all the time there is a there's a a website that I found and of course I'm looking for it but I can't find the name of it but whenever I see old photos especially black and white photos I think because we live in such a like a color focused world and Mm -hmm. I mean you know we've had colored tvs for so long that when we see something in black and white, somehow we think that, or maybe it's just me, that I think their life was somehow different than mine, right? Mm -hmm. Like it seems so far away. So long ago, they lived a different type of life, but there's a website that's of this woman who colorizes photos. Mm -hmm. And there's something about seeing them colorized that then you think, oh my gosh, they're just like us. And I don't know why that that makes the difference, but when I've seen some pictures of World War I and that she's colorized those photos and you're like, oh my gosh, that young man right there, that soldier doesn't look that different than my 22-year-old son. You know what I mean? So I don't know. I I love looking at those websites that that colorize those really old pictures. I, I have a habit, which I know this is not the case, but when I see black and white photos, there's a part of me that, and again, I know that they didn't, but there's a part of me that's like, they saw everything in black and white. Yeah. And I know that's not the case, but I don't know. It's almost, it's just very strange. I have to remind myself that Mm -hmm. they saw things in the exact same way that I see things. I'm like, I'm almost 50 years old. Why, why am I thinking like you would understand that if a child thinks that, but. I mean, I still think the same way. I remember some like when I was younger, I used to ask my grandmother, oh, what was it like in the 60s, in the 70s? And she would always say it it was the same. And I never understood that until I really recognized, okay, like things really weren't that different. It was a different time, but, you know, and maybe they didn't have the same technology, but it really wasn't as vastly different as my mind likes to think. Right, right. 
Well, Brittany, thank you so much for joining us. It has been a real delight chatting with you. And we're looking forward to see what the other books that you have coming out in the next couple of years. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. And I've enjoyed talking today with you. You can find Brittany on Instagram at BrittJaneE and at her website at www.brittanytherman.com. Thanks for joining us this week. Follow us on Facebook at the Perks of Being a Book Lover or on Instagram at Perks of Being a Book Lover Pod to see what we're up to. For show notes for any episode, go to our website at www.perksofbeingabooklover.com. A huge thank you to Forward Radio 106.5 FM, a grassroots community radio station in Louisville, Kentucky. You can find our show there, live or in archives, at forwardradio.org.